Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and welcome to Games on Film. Yes, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. <laughs> um, well, there's a sort of a semi-connection between this film and and this franchise, I suppose, and uh, our previous episode, isn't there? Yes, our last episode was covering Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, both game and film. And this time around, we are examining a series which was also developed by Ubisoft and had a spin-off movie and the connections run fairly deep for mm. both of them it is assassin's creed mm. first game came out in 2007 i believe but it's uh, another one of these franchises which releases a game pretty much every year i myself have not played a single one of them i think for uh, assassin's creed i was like what gives with the hoods they can't they see out of their hoods and that sort of put me off <laughs> i like, think i think most people who wear hoods but these, their face can is still exposed they can no, see past the it, hood but all i saw in the video video box all i saw on the computer game box was someone who's meant to be a master assassin but his hood is pulled down right over his face and i was hoping this film would explain that in some capacity but spoilers it does not <laughs> In the film, and I think in the game, they they put the hood on when I think they're in sort of, I'm trying to not be spotted mode. Mm. But that also just makes you stand out because you're the only one in the whole of the game or, or wherever you are wearing a hood. Mm. They're looking for a hooded figure. And it seems like in the film, the, the big shot where they put some hoods on them mm. is right after they've already been spotted. Mm. So it's like, oh, crap. They've seen us. They know what we look like. And yeah, the, you're the people who are climbing up the, the, <laughs> side, of up the a side of the building. Well, I know in the games, I did a bit of research about the games, having not played them myself. And uh, there's one feature called blending, um, which allows you to blend into the environment. So I think it's a sort of meditative type skill you use because you they sort of hold their hands almost in a, in, a, in, a, in a manner of prayer. And Unfortunately, blending... Is not a cooking mini game where you <laughs> you add lots of ingredients to a, spices. to a little blending machine and mm. whiz it up and make a nice uh, assassin smoothie. Mm. But um, the the franchise, as I said, is is super duper popular. There's a new one coming out uh, imminently, isn't there? Yes, Assassin's uh, Creed Odyssey, mm. the setting of which is ancient Greece. Great, <laughs> ancient Greece. And I guess before we go any further, there'll be spoilers, I think, about the games and the film. Um, so what is the hook of the games, then? It's called Assassin's Creed. Yes. Well, let's go back. Back mm -hmm. to 2007. Yes, we've, we've jumped in the animus, gone back into our own pasts. Yes, I merged into 20... Merged into my 2007 ancestor, which mm. is probably just myself again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what happened there? Well... In reference to Prince of Persia, I, I think Assassin's Creed started out in a way as a future Prince of Persia installment, 
In fact, the first Assassin's Creed game shares uh, the same game's director, a person I believe by the name of Patrice Desilet mm-hmm. or Desilet. Just we play Desilet. Is his surname Desilet? No, I think it's D E S I L E T S, but I think in French, if it ends with an S, then you can still pronounce the T. So I'm going to say Patrice Desilet. Mm-hmm. The game sort of came about, and if, if you've played Prince of Persia or listened to our previous episode, uh, that's a game which is set in a sort of um, mystical version of the past and involves a lot of running and jumping and climbing up walls and running along um, very thin surface area. It sort of describes a lot of uh, games, though, doesn't it? I like my games <coughs> like to be set down and stationary, not doing very much. <laughs> but with Assassin's Creed... The uh, idea of the games is that uh, each instalment at least is set in a, usually in a different time period and you're transported back into these time periods uh, through this piece of technology called the Animus hmm. and you inhabit the lives of your ancestors in order to complete whatever tasks and missions. But when it came out, it was very much based around stealth and laying low and then... Jumping into haystacks. Jumping into haystacks, lots of climbing up, reaching really... Climbing up really tall spires of churches or really high buildings and then jumping back down again. And usually in doing so, you know, jumping on top of someone and stabbing them in the neck with Mm. your magical hidden blade. The first game was had quite a lot of hype surrounding it and mm. I, I didn't really play it I, I i saw it in action i think a friend of mine was playing it and it had a lot of hype and it was relatively well received but it was quite criticized for being a bit repetitive and mm. not really what was promised i think i think it was a bit rough around the edges and yes a lot of I think the the stealth and sneaking around for again from what I gathered in reviews and things wasn't quite refined. So I think mm. it was really the sequel which sort of kickstarted them the massive spike in popularity and, and I think the game pro- proper it, its um, potential was realised from the second yes. one onwards. They really um, I think with Assassin's Creed two they really sort of honed the mechanics and made it more pleasurable to play and such was the case i think the main character in that game Ezio Auditore um is still probably the most famous of the assassin's creed protagonists i think they ended up making a few games mm. with him some sort of spin-offs and he even appeared in Soul Calibur 4 i think mm. as uh, one of the additional characters so that's probably how i know him <laughs> know him most yeah i mean it makes a certain kind of sense for him to be in Soul Calibur more so than Yoda and Darth Vader and Spawn. Um, (laughs) But um, in terms of Assassin's Creed games I've actually played, uh, really it's just bits and pieces, demos here and there. I've played a little bit of Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which is the one set in Victorian London, which I think is one of the most up-to-date in terms of the chronology of the mm. of of the games, it's a bit like Blackadder, really, isn't it? Imagine if yeah. I, would, I wonder if it's like a Baldrick style character, <laughs> a complete idiot fool who um, um, your assassin has to perpetually put up with. I'm pretty sure there must be one of the games where someone says they have a cunning plan, and, hmm. and that cunning plan is to jump down from the rafters and stab someone in the face. Hmm. And the it's not just going around murderizing people. The the, the plot through line 
of all the games is um, how these uh, Brotherhood of Assassins are in perpetual war with um, the Knights Templar. And I think there's also about averting a, a, an apocalypse as well. But character-wise, one of the, the big decisions made for the film, which we're about to discuss, is there's, I think, no characters at all from um, the original games. Um, I, I think there's one yeah. referenced. I think it was a mutual decision by uh, Ubisoft and um, the filmmakers just to allow the plot to go wherever you want. Because um, I think one interesting question about cinematic adaptations of, of relatively modern games is that games now are... I mean, I don't want to say games are cinematic and cinematic being um, the um, the aspiration of all video games because, uh, you know, mediums can be just excel in their own mediums. But... I don't see the point of making a film version of, um, of Last of Us or or games which are very, very cinematic. So I think there's a good call there to say we're not going to remake the plot of Assassin's Creed 2 or whatever. We're going to do our own thing. I think, yes, games have reached a point where I think audiences expect a certain um, developed storyline and expect characters that they can invest in at least when it's a, a game which is story focused or is is driven by plot i'm not suggesting that everyone thinks that should be the case with you know puzzle games <laughs> and, and you know maybe you know sports sims or something although you know usually they have some kind of developed career mode nowadays mm. but yeah i th- i think what they decided to do was the film is set in a time period and location which none of the games had touched. Mm. So that allowed them to create a story which was original, and the uh, protagonist is of a different, I guess, ancestral background, mm. and, but is still a... Um, his ancestors were in the Brotherhood of Assassins. Of course, I guess there's another point to make clear. The, the large portion of the um, original games, they're all different points... In the ancestry of um, uh, the main character, whose name I forget, I think Desmond, Desmond Miles. Yeah, and from what I read, Desmond had rejected the life of of being an assassin, much in the same way as uh, Michael Fassbender's character Callum in the movie did. Again, it's sort of just paying homage, but not a, a recreation of the video games well i don't think he is callum even aware of the assassins i don't think he rejected the life of the assassins he didn't make a conscious choice i think he just sure there's a line drop somewhere where i think he was an assassin not an assassin with a small a and not a capital a but he's been charged for uh killing someone and it was just one person yeah i mean he just is getting started (laughs) (laughs) assassin in waiting yeah you know he was just you're not a serial killer until at least Two, three, yeah. I don't know what the definition is. But with the games, I, I think what they've decided to do recently with the franchise, because I think people were getting a little bit tired of the annual installments and maybe the sort of gameplay was getting a little bit well-worn. But with Assassin's Creed Origins, um, I guess based on the sort of title that was set in ancient Egypt, uh, so way, way back, predating 
Knights Templar and uh, I and even oh, yeah. assassins or assassins and stuff. I'm sure um, there was like assassin cavemen though. <laughs> Order, I want you to I want you to put out a hit on yeah, I want you to garrot Ugg with a piano wire. Okay, question: What's a piano? Maybe I'll just hit him with this rock. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, they've gone back that far, have they? Yeah, and I, I think what they've what they've implemented recently actually is is a few. I can't remember what it's called, but sort of historical modes where you can basically go into the game world and not actually fight or not actually do the story and what's, you can what's just what's the point of living if but there's no, no murder but that... <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a question raised by the film i think mm. um but i think it's interesting because they've put a lot of time in developing these worlds and usually with a fair you know fair degree of i wouldn't say historical accuracy but attention to detail and you know, using historians as advisors and consultants. Mm. And I think we've, they started it with Origins, and I think they're continuing it with Odyssey, where basically there's just a way to just walk around and talk to people. And I think they even have commentary by historians explaining what's going on and learning a bit more about the culture. And I think that's a really, it's interesting that they're, you know, yes, it's a game all about killing people, but they also think, well, we can also make this an educational tool at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> kids, don't murder people, don't take drugs. And um, yeah, here's some pots, I suppose. No, that's quite nice. It's edutainment, isn't it? And um, yeah. So um, when did you first see uh, Assassin's Creed? Because I, I had not seen this film before recording uh, this podcast. I watched it actually earlier this year for the first time. So I, I didn't see it upon release, mm. which was um, December 2016, I think it came out. I didn't expect to necessarily return to it quite so soon, but um, back then I didn't know I was going to be doing a Games on Film podcast. Well, if memory serves, I think this is one of the films which prompted you to start this whole endeavour. A little bit. Well, I think it was also just, um, as we mentioned in our episode zero, just the glut of video game and video game related Mm. movies which were due in cinemas Mm. uh, in this year, 2018. People needed to hear about him. (laughs) They had to. People hadn't heard of these movies until we came along, so we had to remind them that they existed Mm. i was certainly aware this film had come out and and been and gone and um i was aware that again people have been kind of dismissed dismissive about it i didn't see any real point in seeing it myself because i wasn't a fan of the franchise though i was very impressed with the talent involved in it um the director who is justin kurzel justin kurzel um um he did the the beautiful looking Macbeth um, with yes. Michael Fassbender and Marion, is it Couillard? Cotillard. Cotillard, who, um, who are both present and correct in Assassin's Creed. Yeah. It's a full compliment of um, Michael Fassbender and Marion Couillard. Marianne Cotillard. <laughs> I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but at least I'm putting a mm. bit of a French spin on it so it sounds yeah. all right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting that they reunited. I think Fassbender was produced the film mm. and was the leading person, I think, trying to get it made, even though he hadn't actually played any of the games. I think, I think he wasn't even aware they were games yeah. until he was approached. I think he was, yes, he was just approached and read the script and liked it. And then I guess he'd just done Macbeth and he was like, hey, Justin, I've got a movie idea for you. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to do a video game movie now? Oh, and Marion, how about you? <laughs> yeah, I was looking to make a film 
featuring creeds quite heavily. Do you have any of those on the on your plate? And yet he didn't star in the film Creed. No. <laughs> Mr. Trick there. Mr. Trick. But yeah, I know, I'd not really heard about this filmmaker before uh, Macbeth. Um, but I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've still not seen it. It was very oh. much on my list. But I've seen lots of footage and it's absolutely gorgeous and shot on a fraction of the budget of this. Yeah, well, I, I saw Macbeth in the uh, Kinoplex mm-hmm. in the cinema. And I think, yes, my I was probably a bit dismissive of the Assassin's Creed film, I think, because the games had just been so relentlessly released and it seemed a bit tired. But then the fact that it was Fassbender, it was Marion Cotillard, and also primarily because of Justin Kurzel, mm. um, that sort of intrigued me because I thought Macbeth was pretty good i don't Mm. think necessarily i I think it just looks amazing Mm. i don't think necessarily the performances are particularly interesting i think you think fassbender is macbeth and cotillard is lady macbeth does cotillard do a scottish accent Uh, i can't remember okay i mean but uh, actually the performances are fine but they're not like as exciting as you're gonna be yeah okay but i i first saw I saw Justin Curzel's first film, mm-hmm. um, which was Snowtown, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. The Snowtown Murders. Okay. And that's maybe one of the most relentlessly grim and upsetting <laughs> films I've ever seen. It's uh, He's an Australian director, and it's based on this very famous serial killer case in Australia. Who stars in that? Do you know? Um, no one particularly famous, but it does have the main murderer dude. I can't remember his name, but he pops up in um, Okja, the Bong Joon-ho oh, movie. Yeah, yeah. And he was also in The Babadook. Okay. Starring Essie Davis, mm-hmm. who is not only in this film playing Michael Fassbender's mum, oh, but also is from. married to the director. So Okay. But yes, anyway, I, I would recommend seeing Snowtown... Mm. But very, very heavy, cautious. When you've had a great day. See, it's on uh, your birthday. <laughs> it's it's pretty, pretty bad. I mean, speaking cool. of relentlessly grim movies, I guess Eden Late was an early Michael Fassbender Yeah, I think that uh, was the first film experience. I experienced. I think I first saw him and his six-pack in 300. Sure. And then he was in Eden Lake, which, um, if you've not seen it, is... What if like the day, what everything that said the Daily Mail said about hoodies was true? Yeah, um, it's like a horrific. They were all hoodie. assassins. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty pretty horrific. But also he um, did a turn in uh, Inglorious Bastards as mm. a stiff upper lit. Stiff, stiff upper, upper lit. lit. Stiff upper lit. His performance was stiff upper lit. As it was lit, man. But yeah, he play, plays a Brit in that, and I thought he was great and. He's been doing a, quite a few indie films. He's been doing a, quite a few blockbusters. Um, I yeah. feel his blockbuster work is perhaps a little less successful. I think he's a great Magneto in the X-Men films, but um, I think latterly his character was not so well served. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've always, I found him interesting, and he, he picked some interesting movies, and I always sort of felt maybe blockbuster stuff was beneath him, but... But actually, he seems to get really excited about that stuff. Like, I always think, oh, but he's trying to be an important actor. And then he was just like, yeah, I'll do Assassin's Creed. Yeah, I'll do X-Men. Even though sometimes I think his accents can be a bit wobbly. He's always playing, like, Irish plus something. (laughs) I think he's probably, accent-wise, he is 
best when he is doing super English. Mm. It's either Irish twang or super English. So I think his accent in Inglorious Bastards and in um, the uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant films is, I think, on point because it's almost like a kind of parody mm. of supreme Englishness. I think also, actually, if, if memory serves, he... Um, in his first X-Men film, they were trying to do... They wanted to be as separate as possible from the mainline X-Men films, and so he wasn't trying to be Ian McKellen. But moving on in um, the next X-Men film he was in, which was Days of Future Past, had, that had Ian McKellen in it, so he had to basically be Ian McKellen. So Be more Ian. Be more Ian. Well, there's the outrageous accent Ian McKellen has in the Michael Mann's The Keep where it's set in sort of Nazi Germany, but some people speak with German accents, but he speaks with like a kind of, oh, Chicago accent, oh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Is that a Chicago accent? Wah, wah, yeah. wah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Chicago town pizza, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> God. Uh, so I guess I think we've just proved we, we, we've got a tin here for accents, so yes. we can't really criticise. I think all the accents in this film are pretty um, damn good. And Marion Cotillard is playing the daughter of a very English man, but mm. not really trying to be English. Um, I thought she sounded less French than she does usually. I mean, I know her I know her mostly from Christopher Nolan films. She's very good in Rust and Bone, I think. Anyway, mm. she's good in that. She's very good in the Darden movie. I can't remember what it's called now. Some days, some sort of like... <laughs> But she's very good. She's she's a very good actress, and I think sometimes I think Hollywood doesn't know what to do with her. I think that's the one where she's begging for her job or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. an excellent film. Yeah. I mean, this film not just we've been talking about the main players, but it's peppered with quite interesting uh, like character actors. And in general, we got your Jeremy Irons. Uh, you mm-hmm. got your Omar Cumming. You got um, is it Michael K. Williams? Omar Cumming. Oh, Omar right, Cumming. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was a surname. I mean, you can't. He's actually, he's been in loads of stuff since The Wire, but yeah. you just, whenever you see him, you're like, Omar coming. Charlotte Rampling. Great to see her, and also... Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, and also playing a younger version of Brendan Gleeson is Brian Gleeson, his son. Brian Gleeson. Yeah. Not Domnall. Not Domnall. Couldn't get Domnall. No, but I think Domnall looks quite a bit different than a younger... Yeah, I suppose. But yeah, he pops up halfway through and like, I love Brendan Gleeson, man. Yeah. Um, I think there's another film where he... I think, like, Those Who Trespass Against Us, I think it's mm. called. That's another film where Gleeson and Fassbender play father and son. Cool. Maybe. You're here to save my soul. I understand it's your birthday. Yeah. The party's just getting started. His name is Callum Lynch. We've traced his bloodline back 500 years to the Assassin's Creed. As anyone in the world knows or cares, you no longer exist. What is this place? This is your second chance. What do you want from me? 
your past. You're about to enter the Animus. What you see, hear, and feel are the memories of your ancestor, who's been dead for 500 years. Wait a minute! Welcome to the Spanish Inquisition. Um, so we've cast the film. We have. We've got our director. Mm-hmm. Let's let's begin the film. Let's talk. Let's um, talk the let's talk movies. Let's talk Ubisoft's logo because again I've mentioned this before. I love it when the game logo, the game company logo, appears, and this is lovely. It was all much nicer than you see in the games. And, yeah. Um, and the 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 logo for the film as well. They just replicate the same logo as, mm. as the games. It's clearly. It's a piece of branding. It's a piece of marketing. Well, the first few minutes of this film, there's a, a bit of text at the start, which um, I, I will repeat in just a moment, I suppose. Yeah, but, um, in, in lieu of having a video... Uh, uh, video box. Uh, yeah, a VHS cassette. In mm. lieu of having a back of the box to read, we'll use the preamble mm. at the start. But um, um, what's the famous quote which is used throughout the video game sort of franchise and pops up here as well? Uh, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Mm, because the assassins, they, the assassins and the Templars are two sides of the same coin. They both want order. No, I'm sorry. They both want, you know what? What do they want? <laughs> um, peace ultimately. But uh, the Templars want peace through order, and the assassins want peace kind of through free will and, and effectively chaos. And um, so you you have that quote. You have uh, eagles flapping about the place, and uh, the scene is set by this text we were talking about earlier. So, shall I read it? Because uh, yeah, I go got ahead. it here. For centuries, the Order of the Knights Templar have searched for the mythical Apple of Eden. They believe it contains not only the seeds of a man's first disobedience, but the key to free will itself. If they find the relic and decode its secrets, they will have the power to control all freedom of thought. Only the Brotherhood, called the Assassins, stand in their way. But the uh, the Apple of Eden mentioned there is a, a, a MacGuffin in the game itself, in the first game. Okay. Again, I'm speaking as someone who's watched this franchise from the sidelines. There's, I think, a lot of elements from Eden which are collected throughout the game. But uh, anyway... The Apple is the big tamale when it comes to... Mm. Eden paraphernalia. Yeah, we. I mean, I'm sure Eve ate lots of other forbidden stuff <laughs> in the uh, Garden of Eden, but all we hear about is the apple. Uh, the apple. <laughs> Talk about the apple again. Yes. But um, yeah, we'll leave the rest of what she ate to your imagination. But yeah, I, as I say, you, this is not gonna. You're not gonna confuse us with anything else. This is an Assassin's Creed movie, <laughs> and uh, we have that little bit of uh, stuff in the past. Is it 1492, I think? Yes, the the caption comes up of the setting and it says Andalusia, Spain, 1492. Mm -hmm. And in a way that sort of gives away the whole damn movie because as soon as you hear 1492, Mm -hmm. anyone with... I'm looking at you, Harry. Anyone knows Mm -hmm. in 1492... Mm -hmm. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Oh. And maybe, maybe if they found out this, all this was happening in 1492, mm-hmm. maybe the people who are trying to find the Apple of Eden might have thought, oh, 1492, that 
date in history is familiar because of Christopher Columbus. Maybe we should look at Christopher Columbus but material. I'm talking about a whole load of people, not just it's not just six people in the bloody planet. Yeah, in uh, okay. 1492. Everybody, everyone knows it's like if you said 1066, you'd be like, mm. okay, William the Conqueror then. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess from a from a narrative or audience standpoint, that would be correct. But if I was a researcher, see, I I I had forgotten that part of the film. But I wrote down in the notes when we were watching it just now, 1492, oh, Columbus. Mm. And then we get to the end of the film and it's like, Columbus. Mm. Oh, right, okay. So these um, assassins are talking about this apple, which is going to help them against the, in their war against the Knights Templar. Throughout the course of the film itself, I think it's maybe easier to talk about how the, the thrust of the whole plot is how people in modern day are trying to get hold of this apple. The battle continues in the present day. Um, but the way they do this is much like the uh, video games. They need to get hold of somebody whose ancestor was around during the time. And this ancestor is Michael Fassbender or yes. this character, Callum. Yes, yeah, so it's Michael Fassbender. Mm. Isn't it great that Michael Fassbender looks like Michael Fassbender? I wonder if I went back... 500 or so years into the past whether there'd be someone who looks identical to me well yeah i mean even though he's like aguila dinner half and mm. he's uh, a spanish dude it looks like michael fassbender i mean that's that's mm. what it is they don't make any attempt to make him look any less like michael fassbender one thing they do do which i read is um he wear he wears brown contact lenses in the past <sighs> Um, it might have been difficult to see because all the past stuff is colour graded to within an inch of its life. Yeah, and also he's got his hood in his eyes all and the time. And he can't see his eyes. Um, yeah, I suppose this is sort of an elaborate version of um, that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? And do you yeah. think um be interesting if, I don't know, Chris Eubank or something was looking at his family tree and he found that his great-great-great-great-grandfather was an assassin? Or, well, no, it would be he's a boxer. <laughs> yes, who because, looks identical to him? So this, the, the another a theme of the film. We've talked about the plot of thrust, but a, a theme of the film is is whether violence and certain other characteristics are hereditary. Yes, the idea that you were born predisposed to violence. And when they said that, when they said that, I wrote down that this was a bit of a troubling idea, and I thought I'm ho- and I thought I'm hoping the film doesn't just take as read that um stuff like that is hereditary i think the the question on on what you get from your from your bloodlines is a, is a tricky one it, it skirts around the edges of, of eugenics and things yeah there's a certain degree where you could say you know if you've been arrested and you're on trial and you can say oh it wasn't me that did this it's because my ancestors did it and I'm predisposed <laughs> to violence so you can't blame me for mm. the crimes of my ancestors so if, if you believe that um, you had murder in your blood then you would again profile people to be yeah. murderers but what I'm delighted to just say just like Zootopia <laughs> yes this is very much a remake of who do you think you are but with uh, animals uh, Zootopia yeah, it's the Cain and Abel defence <laughs> but um, I was delighted to discover that um this film is trying to keep things a bit ambiguous. It's it's it actually wants to have a bit of a discussion about that sort of thing. Later in the film, we'll get there eventually. It maybe doesn't do the ambiguity quite successfully. But um, what I did enjoy is that our assassins weren't 
absolutely the good guys and the Knights Templar, they are sort of pursuing peace. I did I did sort of write, write in my notes, it's weird how the good guys are assassins. Um, but then I said, oh, Harry, are you really suggesting that you want to live a life completely, um, basically in a totalitarian, to- well, here we go, totalitarian state? Well, I, you said that assassins and Templar were two sides of the same coin, mm. but they are the extremes mm. of that coin. Mm. You know, people generally will fit in the middle and it's just like they want to achieve their aims, but they'll go to extreme lengths in mm. order to do so. Whereas most people are probably happy to sit in the uh, middle of the coin, the small little ridge mm. of a coin. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... but it's in, in this intro... As you said, we get the iconography of the game quite heavily. Mm. You see within the first five minutes um, the eagle flying mm. around because in the game you have eagle vision. Mm. Uh, the I think they mention in the film the spirit of the eagle will watch over the future. So there's this link between assassins and eagles, I guess. Yeah. It's their spirit animal. And um, when you're playing the game, you can... I think you synchronize with your surroundings and mm. that gives you an overview of the of the stage uh, that you're in. But also, yes, you get, you know, characters wearing their hoods and you see your first shot of the wrist blade, which is your um, secret stabby weapon, which pops out of your wrist and that's used mm. in the games as well. So it, it condenses everything to be like, don't worry, games fans. <laughs> we know you came here for Assassin's Creed and we're going to show you all this stuff in the first five minutes before you get, like, mm. when are they going to get to the wrist blade? Well, here's the thing. As, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, this shares a lot of DNA, with, naturally enough, <laughs> it shares a lot of DNA with Prince of Persia, and I felt like I was slightly gl- grasping at straws when it came to the Prince of Persia iconography. The Sands of Time stuff was used very sparingly, and we found the parkour and everything pretty so-so but this film gives i think gives you everything you kind of want there's just endless well-shot choreography i thought the fighting in this was fantastic whole lot of assassinations happen actually what's the difference between an assassination attempt and just flailing around and murdering people i'm Uh, asking for a friend well isn't isn't an assassin someone who does something because they're told to or paid to Mm. I think, but everyone's a target in this movie. Yeah, I mean, why did these guys call themselves assassins? It's based on historical fact. Oh, yes, the another assassins, <laughs> which we discovered, uh, we had encountered in Prince of Persia, mm. and the assassins uh, themselves have their origins in real life, mm. and so this very much adheres to the tenets of assassinations. Mm. We talked about the director and, and, and things. I think this might also be one of the best-looking um, video game movies that we've done. It's just full of amazingly stylish shots um, and really interesting locations. Yeah, com- compared to Prince of Persia, mm. as we just watched, everything looks pretty impressive mm. in a visual sense. And we, we bemoaned the fact that in Prince of Persia, there was just a lack of visual flair, mm. and someone with more uh, with more interesting eye would have brought more to it. And yeah. I think in this film, uh, Justin Kurzel does that. So long as you like a lot of smoke and fog and well, I mist. Think, <laughs> I think that really helps sell the. It gives it. I mentioned the color correction earlier, 
and that's something which can be overused in modern films. But I think this gives everything this sort of mythic, ancient look. And um, again, both Prince of Persia and Assassin's Creed start with a with a young child, our protagonist as a child, yeah. fleeing pursuers on rooftops. Yeah. And while Prince of Persia, which I'm sure cost millions more, um, being a Disney production, felt fairly just lumpen and and um, sloppy. This just really was some tension. There was mystery. The um, Callum. The reason why he's fleeing is that he sees his dad murder his mum. And then all these all these people in, in black SUVs arrive. And, you know, right away, there's a mystery. There's a murder. There's a chase. And it's done. It's shot in the golden sunlight hours. And it's just absolutely fantastic. And I was just mightily impressed already by this film. We cut to 30 years later, though. And, and poor old Callum, he's in a bit of a tight spot. <laughs> he's uh, about to get a lethal injection, isn't he? Yeah, we we catch up with Callum, and um, we assume because of uh, what happened to him back as a as a child that he hasn't led the the happiest of lives. Mm. He's on death row. He's in a he's in a prison, and he, it's on the day his birthday, in fact, that he's going to be executed, <laughs> um, which is a lovely surprise. I mean. I feel like we quote The Simpsons every single episode, but that's a bit in The Simpsons when I think Homer eats Hans Moleman last meal. Yeah. And the priest goes, well, if that's the worst thing to happen to you today, consider yourself lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Callum's been arrested. They've mentioned he's guilty of capital murder. Mm. And when he's asked whether he has any last words, he says, tell my father I'll see him in hell. Mm, um, that's because. But yeah, it's a badass thing to say. The reason he he says that is um, because it's his dad that killed his mum. Mm. We we saw that um, his dad had uh, killed his mum uh, before the you know black SUVs and the uh, Templars, including Jeremy Irons, showed up to give chase. Um, so was that Jeremy Irons in the car? Yeah. Oh. So anyway, uh, Callum Lynch he gets the lethal injection. And we think, oh, that's a short movie. Yeah. Pretty good, though. Yeah. Turns out it was a fake-out. Mm. This wasn't real death juice. Yeah. It's a trope, which is also in... It's not really a, it's not really a spoiler to say in uh, uh, Luc Besson's La Femme and Nikita, where somebody is given a second chance, but only if they're an assassin <laughs> type deal. And it's a trope I quite like, and I'm happy to see it again. He discovers himself in this, uh, it's called a rehabilitation centre, um, full of people in a similar situation. Um, but he, he's given the tour by Marion, uh, what's her name in the film? <laughs> Is it just going to be easier to pronounce than Kotiyar? Yes, I thought that's a good idea. It's uh, Dr. Sophia Ricken. Yeah, I can deal with that, Sophia. But uh, they do the old thing, though, where he doesn't know quite why he's here and she's being a bit vague on the details. Yeah, she says, if you listen to me, it will all make sense. Mm. Uh, debatable. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, uh, when you watch the movie, it's actually whether it all does make sense. I mean, the, a big crux of the film is the synchronisation between Michael Fassbender's mind in the present day and his ancestor in the past. And they say he has to willingly um, release himself to these past memories. So I would imagine the best way to go about this is to tell him everything up front, 
rather than surprise him with a giant metal claw going into his back and pulling him up into um into the top well, of the, but I into think, space. I I think that's um so Sophia Ricken her uh, dad, mm. uh, Daddy Ricken, is played mm. by Jeremy Irons, mm-hmm. and I think it's him who's trying to push her to do that. Yeah, okay. I think she's more like, give him time, and he's like, no, we haven't got time. Now, he doesn't have time because his boss... Charlotte Rampling, Charlotte who is Ramping. the leader of the elders of the Knights Templar, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, she is putting um, the pressure on him, but was there an actual... Was there, was there any sort of Tomb Raider-esque quote about the planets aligning or some such nonsense? No, it was basically that they're funding this project $3 billion oh, yeah. annually, and she's like, that's too much money, so we're going to discontinue the funding at our <laughs> annual general meeting next week. It's basically just, you know, finance. It's, and... like, it's like Brexit and the NHS on yeah. the side of a bus. It says, we want to fund Animus with the money we, we were paying the EU. Well, it's just the Templar Finance Department have just re- released their annual reports and accounts. It's just like, we're spending $3 billion mm. on this stupid project. You haven't found the Apple of Eden. Yeah. Bah! I mean, the Apple of Eden, as we said, it's, it's meant to contain basically humanity's free will. Um, but I think the way it's sold to Michael Fassbender is how they're trying to just get rid of violence, period. It's, yes. They say violence is a disease um, and they want to get rid of it. It's something which I thought, I'm not sure that's correct. And I think the film knows this too. The film knows that. I mean, I, I just think, what if um, you cured the violence in a, in a tiger? It wouldn't be able to feed itself. <laughs> I'm not sure it applies to the animal kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be able to feed itself. (laughs) Maybe. Well, but yeah, there's a speech that Rickon is listening to, which he gave himself. He's listening to a speech he gave to the UN, and he mentions that the the history of the world is a history of violence, and that there's no acceptable outlet for aggression nowadays because, you know... But you uh, could have put a line about violent video games in well, there. Well, that's what I was thinking. Isn't video games the outlet for most people's, mm. um, you know, violent tendencies? Yeah, it's a, a cure for violence. It's a bit of a wishy-washy plot. And I think that's one of the main problems with the film, mm. is that they're chasing around for this MacGuffin. And even by the end, I'm not sure exactly what it does. Um, I guess... I think maybe you and I have slightly different feelings about this film there, which is, is nice for a change, because I, I kind of, I like this this, this discourse on, on the nature of violence and whether or not it has I, a place I, in the I, world. I didn't mind the conversation. Mm. It was just the actual physical object, the Apple of Eden itself. Mm. It's symbolic. I understand yeah. the symbolism and what it represents. But, well, we'll get to it when we yeah, come to... Yeah, actually, yeah, when they actually come get, to the end when, of the when, film. When we finally see, lay our eyes on it. Yeah, maybe it's a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so... Um, they strap Callum into uh, the Animus, which in the games is like a, just a table you lie on. But in this film, it's kind of um, like a VR machine that you'd, you'd see at Thorpe Park or something. But they didn't go down the VR-specifically route. Hmm. So they basically attach him to it through his sort of spinal column mm. and I guess going into his his brain. So that's how he's able to, you know, them able to monitor him and also for him be able to see the past. They're trying to tap into his genetic memory mm. and they give him the blades 
that his ancestor Adila had was buried with. Mm. Um, I guess some sort of sense memory thing, but also just because he can then flail around in the air, yeah, which seems I mean, like a kind of health and safe. I mean, mm. health and safety, health and safety. I mean, it serves two purposes because it's a very um, cinematic thing to look at. It's great to see him just lying on the table wiggling around a bit <laughs> would um not be as interesting and, and be a bit matrixy particularly when it comes to the action sequences and mm. they cross cut between it could be annoying but actually i think it works how they edit it and develop that so when he's fighting in the past it's reflected in what he's doing mm. attached to the it, metal it could arm. have gone quite wrong but whenever we see him fighting in the present day there's all this sort of ghostly holograms around. And I think this whole film has this sort of tension and, and it's, it's kind of like a mixture of um, you know, mad science and psychological horror, I think. When he's um, when the machine's gearing up and all the computer screens are turning on and the close-ups of brain cat scans and things, it's just the tension's building and building and building. And, and this extends to these ghostly images during the fight scenes of when he starts to hallucinate throughout the film um it's called i think uh bleeding yeah where, um his uh experiences start to bleed into uh, his present day abilities and that's something in the games as well the, the more he goes into the past the more the character becomes a kick-ass assassin in the present day when he's been hooked up to the animus and he, he doesn't really know what the hell is happening mm. um but uh Sophia says that he will see, hear, and feel uh, everything that his ancestor experienced 500 years ago, mm. but also that he can't change what happens. He's a little bit like he's doing everything, but he's in a way slightly a passenger, mm. and the idea is that he has to be synchronized to their actions, but that whole point of it is bundled in with the free will idea. There's mm. many times you know, doing the things that he does where Callum and the present could decide to zig and Aguila zagged at that point. So would he get gradually desynced? Is that what happens when yes. he gets desynced? I think there's a point halfway through the film. The big moment in any Assassin's Creed game is when he jumps from a great height. And I think at one point in the film... I believe he jumps when he shouldn't, and that's why the connection gets broken. Right. But yes, I don't think that that whole discussion about synchronization and free will and the animus and all that stuff is terribly developed, but um, it makes, looks great. Yeah, but it, it mirrors the whole point of the film, which is free will. Mm. The whole film is all about, oh, we're fighting for free will as opposed to control, and the animus itself is very much a literal representation of free will versus control mm, uh, he, he does the leap of faith and that sort of disrupts the animus um, because he did something which I guess was beyond the memories of his ancestor yeah I, I suppose I mean I think the fact that we're able to have these sort of conversations about this film sort of speaks volumes about how layered and interesting I found it the idea of free will is very much bundled into playing video games. Free will uh, in video games is something which has been sort of touched upon in stuff like Bioshock and to an extent something like Portal. Mm. Um, the idea you're sort of breaking away from what the game and structure 
is telling you to do or or maybe you're adhering to it without realising. Maybe the film should have explored that a little bit, but I think it was more interested in bat flips and crossbows. Mm, Getting to the action. Are the blades prepared? Right here. And we've confirmed their provenance. They belong to Aguilar. We're covered in his burial site. What are these? Assume final preparations. Our regression, Andalusia, 1492. Record everything. Arms ready. What is this? I'm sorry, Carl. This is not the way I like to do things. And don't do it. Insert a pedural. What do you want from me? Your past. Listen to me carefully, Cal. You're about to enter the animus. What you're about to see, hear, and feel are the memories of someone who's been dead for 500 years. You can't change what happens, Cal. Engage now. The way they uh, go into the past, I think, is always quite interesting because uh, I think in this initial entry uh, into the past via the Animus, he's uh, he falls downwards through the clouds and then uh, we're following an eagle and then we're flying around a palace. And I think there's this endless unbroken shot of, I think, a battle is taking place as well. And again, it just feels like in a whole other league to Prince of Persia, which I was in very much this wheelhouse. And the same certificate even. It's funny how, I mean, it's, they had different objectives. Prince of Persia is for, fun for all the family. And this is about a brotherhood of murderers, which is slightly different. But it definitely feels more gritty, more real, mm. dirty. And it just feels like it's more tangible and Mm. i think that carries through to the action it just feels more dynamic and the actions they have have impact and you Mm. feel the blows you feel the uh, arrows whipping through Mm. the sky this as we say this film is is talking about whether or not violence can be cured and it does appear to have its cake and eat it by um having lots of wicked cool martial arts but i do feel even these fights feel brutal and violent and though they they do their fighting stylishly i do think the impact feels quite brutal and again that's something i really appreciated and again i'm just sort of like oh, this is so much better than prince of persia <laughs> yeah I, you compare the jumps and rolls and parkour and running up walls uh in this to prince of persia and in, in Prince of Persia, everyone's sort of a bit floaty and mm. the leaps aren't particularly impressive. Mm. Whereas here you have some very cool 
running up walls and mm. and ducks and dives and somersaults. There's a <laughs> somersaults. Yeah. Roly polies, pencil rolls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't see that coming. <laughs> no. So like, quick pencil roll and oh, then you kind my of... ankles slip snip 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 snip. Or if they did like the uh, kid in Hook who turns into a bowling ball. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Fassbender just sticks his head between his own buttocks and, and just, just rolls into mm. them and then you hear a bowling pin noise. No, but honestly, um there's one bit where there's a, a horse chase, where, where they've got a horse carriage riding along, and one of the assassins jumps onto like an a inward-leaning boulder and then flips back onto the carriage. So they jump onto a moving carriage and back on the carriage. It's just like amazing, lovely stuff. Well done. Well done, assassins. The subplot, I suppose, the actions that are taking place in 1492, which... Mm-hmm. Um, the Rickens are so keen to trace the memory back of. Mm-hmm. I think that was the sentence. <laughs> Basically, I think the uh, Spanish Inquisition, mm-hmm. and they're holding the Prince of Granada to ransom because they believe his father, the Sultan, is in possession of the Apple of Eden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this sequence is basically, as you said, a horse chase where they're trying to uh, give chase to... The prince. Who's in a cage on the carriage, I yes. believe. Yes. Mm. And uh, it ends with Aguila mm-hmm. rescuing the prince. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, he is pulled out pulled of out the animus and thrust back into the real world. So it's a real baptism of fire, jumping into the deep pool when it comes to uh, animus antics mm. <laughs> for uh, for Callum. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like that logic, like throwing at the deep end because it means a lot of people probably do drown (laughs) yeah so lynch after being thrust into the past Mm -hmm. after well after thrust into the past when he's pooed into the present yeah and this was all after thinking he had just died on death row and then Mm. waking up into a facility in madrid filled Mm. with weird people with crazy machines uh, he wants answers. Mm. So he, he says what the fuck is going on to himself at one point. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a, it's a nice moment because it's mm. exactly what the audience is thinking yeah, at the time I too. I think it's exactly the thing I would ask myself if I was in that situation. <laughs> that was him sort of breaking from character probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we are talking about the assassin's clothes earlier, but I like all the uh, the blue linen pyjamas they're wearing in uh, yeah. their facility. I want a pair. They're not, yeah, because they're not prisoners. They, no. are, they are, can leave... At any time, but by leaving, it means jumping out the window <laughs> and killing I mean, themselves. Yeah, so we, we mentioned earlier this is a, a facility, and it's entirely populated by people who have been going through the same program. And I think it's implied all these people have helped re- get to Callum. Is that correct? They're, they've all been used in the pursuit of the apple. Um, Mystery apple, voodoo <laughs> apple. Sorry, we've uh, every time we mention the apple, we are reminded of of uh, uh, one of the peerless good bad movies out there called yes. The Apple, a, a classic canon films production yeah. made in 1980, but set in the far off time of 1994. Yeah, if you if you want a ridiculous, pretty awful, but uh, awesome, uh, outstanding. Uh, glam rock musical, a recreation of the story of the Bible. It's actually, quite it's kind of telling, isn't it? Because that's about the Garden of Eden, I suppose. There's yeah, there's it, it goes very heavy on um, Apple and Adam and Eve and temptation mm. plot, and then abandons it, and then 
well, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but just it, watch it. Cause it gets, you won't see it coming. Yeah, it gets biblical, <laughs> baby. But you know, speaking of religion, I mean, obviously this is dealing with the Knights Templar, and it's not often you see a, a Hollywood movie where religion is, a, is cast in a negative light, because they always worry about upsetting middle America, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, before um, Lynch goes on the tour of the facility, there is... Uh, that scene I mentioned with the elders and Jeremy Irons meeting Charlotte Rampling and he's looking at a painting of the Grand Inquisition of 1492. Mm. So it's implying that not always religion's not always great. <laughs> it's got good points, bad points. Yeah. So Lynch has this tour of the facility and he, he gets a little look at the assassin lab mm. and um, Sophia has a sort of family tree tracing things back and there's some discussion there about his mum and her mum and how her mum was killed by an assassin just like his mum yeah i mean you know a lot of assassinations happening i suppose yeah in their neck of the woods yeah i guess it's i mean it's not like oh that's a coincidence i mean that's what brought them together it's mm. it's not like oh so your mum was was assassinated as well oh, my mum was assassinated too um there's so much alike but yes, she basically sets out that... She decides then to tell him what's going on. Yeah. It's like, you've had this little tutorial, and now <laughs> we're going to tell you the story. And it explains that they need to find this apple as it's the seed of man's first disobedience. And um, they want to understand through it why people are violent. Hmm. I mean, no one ever questions... They talk about this this a- um, apple of Eden, but at no point does Michael Fassbender or anyone say... Well, the Garden of Eden was not real, so... Yeah, or <laughs> this apple that's survived, well, according to you, a couple thousand years, yeah. because that's how old planet Earth is. Half, half-eaten apple as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's probably What's... a little bit manky. I mean, you, you, <laughs> cut, you cut an apple in half and leave it in the <laughs> leave it in the kitchen for 30 minutes and it's all brown and yeah, fuzzy. It's a, bit, it's a bit brown, this uh, <laughs> apple of knowledge or whatever. And when we do eventually see it, it doesn't really look much like an apple at all. It looks like... Big shiny orb. Yeah, it looks it like looks, a paperweight. It looks like um, some French boule. French boule? You know, like French bowls. You know, oh, those yeah. Metal no, bowls it does you, like, look toss like a, into a, a game of bowls. Toss into the sand. Mm, of time. The, the sands <laughs> of time. The Yes, the apple of Eden is but the French bowls that you toss into the sands of time mm. um was all... not a was not a quote from the film <laughs> i wonder why mm. um but yes if he finds the apple then they promise that he'll get a new life mm. he'll be cured did you was it a twist was it supposed to be a twist that it turns out there was an ulterior motive because like i mean or we'll, we'll skip ahead to the end slightly ultimately jeremy irons turns out to be fully on board with the knight templar's mission to eradicate free choice and the film kind of ends when he does <laughs> but i was trying to work out oh is this was this meant to be a rug pull thing was this meant to be a twist he just seems to have been kind of a dick from the start. Yeah, I, I thought... I mean, she knows about the Templars. Mm. He's got Templar fucking cufflinks. And <laughs> she hangs out with Charlotte Rampling when they find mm. the Apple of Eden. And it's a bit like, yeah, of course we're going to use it to 
eradicate free will. What else do you think mm. we're going to use it for? And I think she probably knows, but I think she was more like, oh, I want to study it. I want to be a scientist and stuff. And then Daddy uh, Rickon says, oh, you're always first a scientist and second a Templar. And I, I knew that. So mm. that's why I knew I could get this research from you and just have it my way. I feel like yeah, their motiva- the motivation on the baddie front seems a little bit... Well, no, their motivation is fine. I'm just not quite sure you know, what the filmmakers wanted us to feel in the latter part, in like the final third of the film. Yeah, the last half hour of the film is is where the film goes slightly off in the deep end mm. and doesn't really throw you a, a life preserver mm. as to really what is happening and and what the motivations of everyone are in that moment Mm. but in terms of motivations of Callum's fellow prisoners Mm. they're instantly suspicious of him because they know I guess who he is and they think that he's going to lead them to the apple and thereby they think they're helping that he's helping the Templar people yes yes Mm. because the other people in there at least a few of them are assassins born and bred and they feel like he's going to uh, lead them straight to the apple and end the assassin's creed. Lynch is seeing more and more of these visions, and uh, he's having a bit of a fist fight with one of them. These mm. visions of uh, his ancestor. Um, I think he thinks he's going mad as well. So. Yeah, so he gives the angriest rendition ever of crazy um because that was the patsy klein was singing that on the radio when he found his mother all dead and that mm-hmm. so he's shouting and shout singing uh, crazy <laughs> as he's been he's basically the singing animus. like how I, how I do karaoke <laughs> <laughs> so he gets flashback into 1492 again and this time It's at the Grand Inquisition. The prince has been captured Mm. and Sultan Muhammad has the apple, it is believed. So uh, the assassins are going to be burned at the stake. But he does a little escape just in time Mm -hmm. um, before he goes up in flames. So it's him and he has, I guess, his girlfriend. She was pretty cool. And again, it's just another exciting kick-ass action sequence with a lot of really good fighting. And... um... Yeah, this is a very uh, extended mm. escape sequence, and it has quite a few twists and turns. And it feels it's it's probably the best single action sequence in the film, I think, in terms of the you know the stunt work and you know the acrobatic stuff as much as the fighting stuff. This is the sequence which ends with um, him doing his massive jump and then desyncing, and that leaves him. Kind of paralysed mm, from the waist down yeah. for a, for a, maybe five minutes, but like a Professor X. Yeah, but enough for him to cause some concern. Mm. Basically, they say he's not sort of giving in to the animus. Mm. He needs to um, enter you. into it freely. Yeah, and in order to um, try and convince him of you know wanting to enter the animus and you know going in with free will, Sophia. Uh, gives him the necklace that was his mother had when she died. Yes, she was holding onto a necklace, I think. Yeah, and I think she's trying to sort of sell him on the Assassins versus Templars war and that it's a good thing to find this apple. And then Rickon himself 
decides to meet Lynch in person. And they go to a part of the facility which shows, I think, patients which they've tried but desynced and didn't give in to the animus and mm. failed to sync properly. Basically, those who were um, not in sync. So, <laughs> uh, no Justin Timberlake cameo, <laughs> unfortunately. You, you going there. <laughs> Sorry, very um, laboured. But with, is this the room? Again, there's a lot of these indoor rooms with. Um, plants, plants and trees and things inside. It looks like a little in- indoor garden, and the ceiling of this particular room he's led into is got just a screen instead of a ceiling, and it's just full of birds flying. And again, I just, I just feel this is on another level to loads of video game movies that we that we look at. I don't think they've done much with an artist's eye. Mm. Um, not to say that there aren't some very beautiful ones. I mean, again, I guess. Tron is beautiful in its in its own way, but um, I think yeah, I just was I kept seeing stuff that I would definitely see on the Twitter account. One perfect shot, mm. I reckon. Speaking of Tron, actually, it, I I wrote down Tron as a point of reference because that sort of uh, going into a game's world and the characters mm. being played by the same actors it sort of reminded me of that but i also wrote down cloud atlas <laughs> as a point of view because that's a sort of similar well you know ancestors echoing through time sort of thing but done in a quite different fashion it's not exactly an ancestor but this was giving me real highlander feels because mm-hmm. um, that's one of my i was gonna say guilty pleasure but no i'm, I'm proud loud and proud of my highlander fandom and uh, i think all this film could use was a, a queen soundtrack and hmm. um, that would be the Highlander sequel I always wanted, perhaps. Do you recognize this? It's an assassin's blade. This is the actual one that your father used to take your mother's life. He's here, you know. Mother's death count. Not something a boy should ever be made to see. So who does Callum meet in this part of the facility? He meets his dad, Brendan Gleeson. <gasps> um, they're both kind of Irish, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that worked quite well. Though I don't think either of them are playing Irish people. But... Well, I don't know, Callum Lynch is... Quite oh, yeah. an Irish mm, true. name, I but say. um, but Brendan be blind. Did you did you notice that he was blind because he had kind of milky eyes? Oh, mm. um, no, no. I mean, but why? Um, well, I oh, think... I guess he sort of maybe got animist. Yeah, he was animist out of his eyes. But uh, he's given an opportunity to Cal is given an opportunity to get revenge on his father for murdering his mum. What was um, his father's reason for killing his mum? Well, he says that he it was kind of her decision. Mm. She wanted to be killed because she knew that the Templars were coming after them. Mm. And she knew she was in the bloodline of assassins. And that, I don't know whether she knew about the Animus, but I think she was must have been aware that... You know, she could be the, used. Yeah, and that through the bloodline. So Papa Lynch was like, I was going to, I killed your mum and I was going to kill you too because I needed to end the bloodline. But uh, I just couldn't in that moment because, you know, you're like a tiny kid. <laughs> and it's not like, you know, you're my son. It's mm. tough. 
it's like if you want to take your revenge you know do it now because we shouldn't you know it's best in fact that the bloodline ends and that you die because it's better for all the assassins to be wiped out to stop the templars then carrying oh. on yeah because i knew he was saying don't help the templars but i was a little bit confused as to why he shouldn't help uh, the assassins but um he, he should sort of wipe out the assassins yeah because he's the last living descendant of Aguilar, so mm. it's basically who's known to have been the last person to see where the uh, apple yeah callum sort of refuses and said she had no choice i do mm. and he decides that he's not going to kill his dad so no patricide this time oh <laughs> <laughs> but the, so he, he this resolves him to voluntarily go into the animus and he's gonna well again he can't control what happens can he assassin's creed games as far as i'm aware they don't have the mechanic in games where your choices will determine the next action in the game and whether you get the good ending or the bad ending mm. or that kind of thing but this film sort of feels like it's toying with that idea. Yeah. In the next sequence, when he's back in the Animus, he is in the sequence in which uh, the prince is being exchanged for the apple by mm. the sultan, and you have mm. like the evil inquisitor, and there's some good fight sequence. He's like unleashes some smoke bombs, and they mm. kill a bunch of people. But then his girlfriend gets slain. Yeah, well, there's a bit of a standoff moment which very much echoes what happened with his mum. Aguila is looking at his um, lady friend and she very much is like, you know, just let it happen. Yeah, the creed is more important than... Well, the apple is more important and the creed will live on. So, Mm. you know, just let me die. And he does. But I think in that moment, like, he's just... He's also been stabbed or something as well. And he's lying down and he's looking at her and... It sort of feels like in that moment is like what Callum does now, does that affect... I know it doesn't change what Aguilar did, but how do we know that Callum is going to do what Aguilar does? It's not like they could have read a book which says, Mm. oh, and then Aguilar did this, Aguilar did that. So I don't get the kind of sinking, desinking, you know, the actions that he does, how that really kind of works. Perhaps this is better explained in the games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps. There's a bit of a chase, bit of a fight, and um, it ends with him doing sort of a leap of faith off a bridge. And he didn't know that at the bottom of the bridge is some water. Um, so he survives this plummet. And then s- stuff happens. Weird stuff starts happening. And this is where I think we started to lose the thread a little bit. Yeah. Because I've been, again, I want to say up until this point, I've actually been loving everything I've seen. I thought the, as I said before, the choreography is great. The action is great. It looks beautiful, I feel. I think, as I say, one of the best video game movies we've looked at. And then he arrives back in the present and he's surrounded by ghosts of the past well first the the animus sort of shuts down and then it boots up again and they find what happened to the apple of eden they Mm. watch a hologram sequence where he's talking to christopher columbus Mm. and gives him the apple and columbus says he's a friend of the creed and uh, promises that he will be buried with this apple 
Mm. And they're like, where's Christopher Columbus buried? Oh, Seville Cathedral. Aha, that's just a hop, skip and the jump away. So mm. we'll go and do that. And yes, then there is the scene where, you know, it's not an actual place. It's not an actual setting. It's not a memory, but just some sort of vision of all the other assassins, his assassin sisters. I think to use a portmanteau. I think the hologram projectors of the um, animus are are projecting these, but I I believe it was maybe intentionally ambiguous and um, just just to make it a bit interesting. But yeah, it's not really clear why we're seeing these people at all. And then also uh, Sophia, she sees herself in this group. Yes, which I I guess is meant to be her mum. Because, so Callum sees his mum and she talks to him about the importance of the creed and all that stuff. Mm. And then his dad also appears uh, in that vision, Mm, the younger version of his dad. Up until this point, Animus has all been about, it's like a video recorder just replaying the past. But this is like a, a conversation with your own genetics. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like it's like when you draw a face on your hand and start talking to it. I was thinking more. <laughs> I was thinking more like Mr. DNA and Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. Your blood. <laughs> so, uh, while this is all happening, I think the animus sort of. While this is all happening, the other prisoners in the facility kind of escape and do the sort of things that a prison full of um, assassins do. They kill, killify everyone. Yeah, it was not much foresight for them to, let's build this rehabilitation facility filled with assassins. And I mean, that is a maximum security prison is kind of that, though. But they had a lot of glass, mm. I think, in this place. I think they needed more bars, because <laughs> glass can smash, and bars mm. you know, require a bit more effort to get through. True. It was just too high-tech, too mm. flashy, and you know, clearly designed by a, a movie set designer mm. and not a prison architect but all the fighting and stuff did look very good again um i think it helped it, it helps that i'm sure one or two of these assassin prisoner characters were just martial artists in pyjamas in pajamas but even um the coming actors... down the stairs <laughs> martial artists in, in pajamas, pajamas are coming, coming down, down the stairs. stairs that would have been an interesting kids tv show <laughs> like they're assassins as well yeah, banana ninjas. <laughs> banana ninjas. But uh, what's his name? Michael K. Williams. It looks like he was like kicking ass as well. So the yeah. um, they all converge onto the animus itself, and I guess the idea is that they are trying to stop Callum mm. from finding the Apple of Eden and giving the location to uh, Rickon. Mm. Um, they're too late, but. When they stumble into the room and they see him looking at all these holograms and he turns around and is like, we fight. And they mm. steal some weapons. They're like, ah, no, he gets it now. <laughs> he gets it. I mean... Um, all it needed was just him seeing the vision of all his assassin sisters. They do like a big old fight. And uh, at this point of the film, uh, Michael Fassbender is, is topless. So this is definitely... If you're, if you're a fan of Michael Fassbender's torso but don't want to see his willy... Um, then avoid shame. Uh, instead, watch either this film or Three Hundred. Um, <laughs> that's a bit of tot top tip. <laughs> Great, thanks for thanks for that. That's the new guidance on the back of the bots, I'm sure. <laughs> Torso, tick, yes. penis, cross, cross. Where other men blindly follow the truth, 
They decide to pursue the Knights Templar to um, not to the cathedral. So I think so. This seems to be like a bit of a missed opportunity. This final act of the film because they they tool up our new. I thought we we're going to get a whole sequence full of like modern day assassinations, basically what we've been seeing in the past, but in the present day. But we kind of really don't. Yeah, we get. The Rickens, they, they go to Seville Cathedral and they retrieve the, the apple mm-hmm. of Eden, at which point Charlotte Rampling says to Marion Cotillard that, you know, your dad will has found the apple, will get all the glory, um, but we all know what, uh, you know, we all know that you're responsible for it and, you know, you'll get your day one day. And I kind of felt at that moment, well, what the fuck am I going to do? Find <laughs> the mango of Eden? <laughs> It's like, I mean, the Apple of Eden. I mean, like, that's a pretty cool find, mm. and I found it. So, like, what's next? Yeah, so they, the modern-day assassins, they, they tool up and they converge onto the HQ of the Knights Templar, uh, which is portrayed by, um, I think, the Freemasons Hall in uh, London, which I've actually been into, and it's, it is very much like a secret society. It's kind of crazy, and so it's quite nice to see that on the screen. Yeah, well, I, I was in Malta on mm-hmm. holiday earlier this year, and most of the um, running around 1492 sequences were all filmed there, so mm. I kind of recognised a little bit of architecture, but everything's just clouded in fog and ash and mm. smoke. So. Do you think like occasionally people would go there to, to recreate scenes from the film and just injure themselves doing parkour or get arrested trying to assassinate yeah. oh, somebody? Wait, stop that! <laughs> stop assassinating that person! <laughs> yeah, so they're in the Grand Templar Hall mm. and they're having their big annual general meeting, I guess. Yeah, which was, AGM. Yeah, which I, I think was the mentioned at the start and it's just like we were going to shut down your project, and it's like, oh no, you found the apple, so it's all good now. Oh god, Do you, was this all? Was, was was the time scale just because the AGM was that AGM? Yeah, that week? <laughs> it's basically we're all going to vote to stop funding your funding yeah. your project. Mm. But surely, having found the apple, they'll stop funding his project now. Yeah, <laughs> but it's all right because he 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 did all he set out to do. He also purged the facility as well, so it's um he's written off quite a lot that week. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's all worth it though because he's um he's doing this speech, telling I guess this room full of people what they already know that they have the apple. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of how in the Omen sits it sits the Omen remake. Right, the very start of the film has the Pope been given a PowerPoint presentation about the Book of Revelations. <laughs> and it's like, dude, you're the Pope. Like, why are they explaining the end of days to the Pope? <laughs> if anyone knows the Bible back to front, it'll be the frickin' Pope. You'd hope so. But they're like, yes, and it was written that the Antichrist would rise. It's like, yeah, duh, I'm the Pope, I know. <laughs> but I think if we proved anything of this podcast, I, I failed to retain information from films I've seen just an hour or two ago so yeah. maybe the pope maybe i've got more in common with the pope than i thought yeah i might be like, oh. i might be god's representation on earth yeah i haven't and, read the bible in a few weeks i should mm, probably uh, dip back into it the one of the pictures he likes that one the most yeah the one with the pop-up apple uh, apple of <laughs> it's a pop-up you know, book the pop-up 
<laughs> the Pope Up Book of the Book of Genesis. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the Revelations. Yeah, Pope, Pope Up, up and Pope Up Revelations. <laughs> mm. The thing is, is that it cuts away when he's actually explaining what the Apple of Eden does. So this is the point where he's, you know, got the Apple of Eden and he's telling all the Templar how great that is. And, you know, now we can eradicate violence from the world. And Sophia seems to be a bit surprised about it. But she meets up with Callum and is... Well, Callum is converging on where she is, as as is all his assassin buddies. Yeah. And... They're all. I think everyone's wearing hoods, including the assassin. So they are sort of fitting in. This is the. Bit. This is blending in proper. Yeah. It's just like oh, it's just as well we went to the hoodie convention. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if um, Agent Forty Seven, the hitman, went into a room and everyone was bald. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, was, he was like score. National Balding Association, <laughs> <laughs> or national barcode tattoos on the mm. back of your head. Yeah. Uh, gathering. <laughs> yep. And yeah, they, they have a bit of a chat, don't they, Callum and Sophia? And Sophia says, I could raise the alarm, but I'm not gonna. And then, again, just the way, the film kind of ends because he just strolls up. He slits Jeremy Irons' throat by just sneaking up behind him. I think none of the other assassins do anything. Um, and then everyone leaves and, and then the film ends. Yeah, Jeremy Irons, I guess, activates the apple. Because all this green light mm. and smoke comes out. Maybe it's in demo mode. Yeah, it's like just doing the little <laughs> Back kind in of... the Apple store. Yeah, it's just as well that they had right batteries for it. <laughs> you know, whatever they were using in 1492. Mm. Um, he just kind of turns it on and it's like, I've got this powerful orb now. Mm. Then he dies. And... And then an actual apple was placed in his hand. Yeah. By um, the assassin or just one of the other... One of the other members of the Templar yeah. this will be fun. Callum takes the apple, and it's just like... That's the thing, we don't really understand quite how the apple was meant to do anything. Mm. We know... we, I mean, we they talk about the states, but we don't know if by eradicating violence, what, everyone predisposed to violence will instantly die, or there's mind control, is that we don't see the apple in operation. Maybe if they had done like a test on someone, we could have seen what it does to uh. people. But we just, it's the states are so nebulous, free will, free thought. Hmm. And whether you're controlling, are you manipulating people? Does it mean that he can tell people what to do and they'll do it? He can possess people's minds? And as you say, because the film just abruptly ends straight after that, we don't get a big final climactic sequence. Mm. We don't get a big action finale. We just get a hero shot at the top of the building. Yeah. I don't I don't hate the ending, but it just was a bit like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's a hmm. And I think if there was just a little bit added to the end of the film where he does do this thing and he does kind of like control someone's mind or he does eradicate free will within a 100 meter radius. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, it just sort of, they build it up, they build it up. And then in the end, it just ends up being, oh, it's mm. another MacGuffin. It's an infinity stone. It's a, mm. you know, who's a what's it is just something for them to stop. And, but because the film spends so much time dedicated towards we need to, you know, free will, eradicating violence. So much dialogue is weighted on these topics. You know, it would have been maybe easier if it's just like, oh, and you have the power to destroy everything. Or mm. it's just like, it doesn't matter what the power is. 
you know, lots of films have MacGuffins where it's just power and mm. it's anonymous power and we're fine with it. But because they spend so much time talking about the specific power, what this Apple does, when it ultimately is captured and is activated and you're just kind of like, well, what's it doing? <laughs> just at the moment, it's just emitting a green apple fragrance like a Glade plug-in or something. <laughs> I mean, like... It would have been good if it was a Glade plug-in. And but by the end of the film, though, I was really hankering for an apple crumble. <laughs> that was all I had in my mind. It was just like, mm, I should really go for an apple crumble right now. Mm. So, Harry, final film thoughts on Assassin's Creed. Well, like I've been saying throughout, I, re- I really enjoyed it um, up to a point. Um, I didn't think it quite stuck the landing, but I kind of enjoyed the ideas it presented. I think it's really good, actually, we did this right after Prince of Persia, because I think this one is, is quite literally at leaps and bounds uh, above uh, that film. And, Very good. <laughs> and I think we were literally saying in the last episode how the film Prince Persia had all like the parts it needed for a, a great video game adaptation but it was just falling short of of greatness now I actually read with interest tonight just how vicious some of the reviews were of this film and but I, I was intrigued and interested by the mystery of it all the the overriding tension of it and um it feels like it was uh, directed by an actual filmmaker who wanted to give us kind of a, a visual feast, really. So I would very much uh, recommend this. Um, I guess I just wished that it didn't just end sort of abruptly. Well, when I first watched this movie earlier this year, I was pretty cool to it. I appreciated the visuals, but I found the actual uh, film itself not particularly interesting and ultimately confusing. And I think the reason was was because of that last sort of half an hour of the film. But I think watching it again a second time, I could get around my head uh, with the story a bit more second time. I think Assassin's Creed is increasingly good and then drops off at the end and i think because it's at the end that's the Mm. sort of abiding memory of it i wasn't much looking forward to revisiting it so soon after seeing it Mm. but while i don't think i'll rush to see it again anytime soon i think twice is quite enough for me in one year i would say i would be bump it from a two to a three so, having targeted and, and summarily dispatched uh, Assassin's Creed, uh, what are we going to do next? Well, it's October, mm. the month of horror, the month of spookiness. And spice lattes. And pumpkin spice lattes. <laughs> so, we're going to revisit the horror genre, mm-hmm. and we're going to have a little bit of a double bill mm. in our next two episodes in the realm of survival horror Mm. so that gives a clue of the one we're doing not this coming episode but the one after that but we won't reveal that just yet Mm -hmm. it's time to indulge ourselves once again in the realm of uber bowl we did house of the dead earlier in the year and his next video game movie was also based on a horror franchise Mm -hmm. in fact one of the original survival horror games Mm. we're going to be looking at alone in the dark i'm getting chills already Mm. 
Well, in the meantime, though, how can people uh, keep in touch with us? Well, please send us an email, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com, if you uh, want to get in touch and talk to us at all. Maybe you're more inclined to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash gamesonfilmpod, twitter.com. You can find us at gamesonfilmpod. Our respective Twitter handles are at Rory Steele for me. I'm at only man who can. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. We post all kinds of video game, movie-related content, memes and news tidbits. Yeah, I bet the time by the time you listen to this, there'll be a really good tweet I've just posted. Yeah, check the latest. Mm. All episodes of Games on Film can be found on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash gamesonfilmpod, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have the ability to do so, please like, rate, review, subscribe us, give us positive reviews. Please do share it with friends, family, or whoever might be interested in the kind of films we cover. Yeah, tell your mum to listen to this podcast. Yeah, I bet she's all over Michael Fassbender. <laughs> Just tell her we talk about Michael Fassbender for mm. 90 minutes or so, mm. and then you get an extra listen on the episode. Really? And um, as ever, the music for this episode was by David Lightfoot. Lovely. Well, thanks so much for listening. Maybe see you in the future or the past. That's a Back to the Future quote. Yep, depends wherever the animus takes us next. Exactly. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.